And so, Lord God, we pray that we would join the refrain right now and that you would reign, Lord God, that you would reign, that love would reign, that free, absolutely free love, mercy would reign. Um, and Lord, would you do that through your word? Speak your, your word now and talking to the word, talking to you, Jesus, I just got to say, man, you say nutty stuff. And sometimes I just wonder if anybody believes it. And so, God, if anybody does believe it, it's by the power of your Spirit. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago in Pasadena, California, near Fuller Seminary, where I was enrolled in the Master of Divinity program, I stopped to get some lunch at a uh, crowded chicken stand. I was waiting in line when this apparently underprivileged uh, minority youth walked up to me and he, he said, man, I'm just so, I'm so hungry. Do you think maybe you could just spare a, a few bucks so I could get a piece of chicken? I looked at him and I thought, you know, I'm here to glorify God and to change the world and I should have compassion. So I smiled and I loudly exclaimed, sure, and I handed him some money. The moment I handed him the money, his expression entirely changed. He turned around, he lifted the money up in the air, he waved at his friends and said, yo, guys, I got the money. And then they all started laughing and they ran out of the chicken, out of that, that chicken restaurant. They didn't even buy any chicken. Meanwhile, everyone in line gave me this look. And I knew what it meant. I was familiar with the look. I knew what it meant. You're an idiot. And what did your charity accomplish? Now these boys are re rewarded with booze and drugs uh, while they learn the value of, of lies and they learn the fact that crime pays. Even St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 clearly states if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Couldn't you tell that that boy was not willing to work? You're just, you're just a fool. And what's the point? I knew they thought that, even the Thessalonians part. I knew they thought that. They didn't actually say that, but I, but I knew they thought that. And I just wanted to hide. Hide the wound that had just been inflicted upon my psyche. And I wanted justice. I wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I wanted five bucks for my five bucks. Plus a little interest for the pain and suffering to make it all better. Well, except the part about the, about the interest, that, an eye for an eye, tooth for that, that's a command of God in three separate places in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, chicken leg for chicken leg. Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus expounds the law in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been studying. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil or the evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do not. You understand why Jesus got crucified? 
he presents us with several crises. Number one, who does, who does Jesus think he is? I mean, that's God talking in Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. But I say to you, says Jesus. Number two, how does he not abolish the law? Or at least, you know, like a whole boatload of jots and tittles, iotas, and dots. Remember Matthew 5, 17? About one minute ago, in this very same sermon, he said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a jot, nor a tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Does Jesus have amnesia? And even if he did, why would Matthew record these two statements in the very same chapter? Jesus and Matthew must have thought both statements were true. The one about not abolishing the law and I say to you, deal. Number three, doesn't Jesus will give just like a flying turd about us? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he care about injustice? Doesn't he care about making this world a a better place, creating a better world? Do not resist the one that is evil, turn the other cheek. I mean, what's the point? You know, to be slapped on the cheek in Jesus' day was the very height of insult. And Jesus says, let them insult you some more. In that day, a normal peasant, your average peasant, would own one tunic and one cloak. The the cloak was the only possession, according to Exodus, under Old Testament law to which every Jew had a right. So Jesus is saying, give up all your rights. If someone sued you for your tunic and then you handed them your cloak, you would be standing buck naked in a court of law in front of all those witnesses. And, says Jesus, if someone forced you to walk a mile, go too. Now this was just like an everyday uh, occurrence for the Jews because Israel was an occupied country and it was a practice of the Roman soldiers to conscript Jews to carry their burdens for them. These Roman captors, they were not good by any standards and their occupation of Israel was evil and Jesus says, do not resist the evil. You know, at times I've been absolutely bombarded with mail from Christian organizations begging me to support the military conquest and settlement of old Israel by Jews, resisting the demands of the UN and their Arab neighbors. But Jesus, the king of the Jews, did not say, turn another tank. He said, turn the other cheek. See, I think if he came back again, we'd just crucify him again. Maybe we do. If anyone begs from you, give. If anyone wants to borrow, don't turn away. I mean, doesn't Jesus realize that if we actually did this, well, we'd lose everything and end up looking like, I don't know, Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi. The way the Roman Catholic Church dealt with this crisis historically was to divide Jesus' commands between precepts and, and counsels so that verses like these were only meant for special orders. 
uh, nuns and monks and St. Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa types that wanted to achieve perfection. It was just for them. Many dispensationalists say that the Sermon on the Mount really isn't for us because it's for Messianic Israel. And Messianic Israel didn't really go for it, so that's when God decided to do the whole dying on the cross thing. That's, that's what they say. So these verses don't apply to us, the church, they say. But then these very same folks, they quote a bunch of Old Testament verses about blessing Israel. So they bless the nation state of Israel with guns and tanks and blow off the Sermon on the Mount. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, most Protestant denominations said and still do say, these verses certainly do apply to us as individuals, but not as officers employed by a government agency. They point to Romans 12 and 13 where Paul talks about our individual duty to never avenge ourselves, but then he goes on to talk about the fact that government is a servant of God that does not carry the sword in vain. So the reformers argued that a soldier or a police officer should not, they should not turn the other cheek because it's not their cheek that they're turning. They're employed to act on the behalf of other people's cheeks. It's also interesting that, that Jesus did not say, if someone slaps your daughter on the cheek, we'll let him slap her on the other cheek. And it's interesting that Jesus made a whip and apparently chased money changers out of the temple on his father's behalf. So anyway, the Protestant reformers would say, policemen and soldiers use force to save other people's cheeks, not their own cheeks. However, serious Protestant pacifists, like some of the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, and the Amish, they would argue that if a man is threatening your daughter with a gun, you shouldn't shoot the shooter with your gun, but you should trust the results of nonviolence. You should trust the results of nonviolence to your all-powerful God. It's a pretty good argument. Perhaps the most respected commentary on the Sermon on the Mount for the last uh, hundred years or, or, or maybe more is titled The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When he published it in 1937 in Germany, Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. Commenting on these verses, he writes this, the distinction between person and office is wholly alien to the teaching of Jesus. Bonhoeffer argues that you cannot separate your person from your office, and you always have some kind of office. You're always a father or a mother or a priest or a pastor or a, a, a teacher or a soldier and you're always a person responsible to Jesus. Resistance merely creates further evil, writes Bonhoeffer. By willingly renouncing self-defense, the Christian affirms his absolute adherence to Jesus and his freedom from the tyranny of his own ego. Suffering willingly endured is stronger than evil. Well, by 1942, having returned to Germany from New York, Bonhoeffer was having trouble sticking with his convictions. And in 1984, at the chicken stand in Pasadena, California, I was having a hard time sticking with my convictions as well. 
you really do have to wonder why Jesus wasn't a little more clear on some of these issues. And doesn't he realize that if you never resisted the evil and always turned the other cheek, you would end up looking like Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi or even worse, you could get yourself crucified. And what's the point of that? Do not resist the evil, turn the other cheek, give your cloak, go the extra mile. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Next verse, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually, the Bible never says that hate your enemy part. People say that. You shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that, in order that, for this reason, that you might be, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the Son, he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect. Teleoi, from teleo, the verb, telos, the noun. You, you must be perfect. You must be finished. Do you remember where Jesus was? Teleoi? Finished? You, therefore, must be perfect, teleoi, finished, as your heavenly Father is, teleoi, perfect, finished. What a statement. Henry Nouwen used to tell a story about an old holy man who saw a scorpion floating helplessly in the Ganges River near, near the banks. The old man leaned out over the water, hanging onto some roots, and he, he tried to rescue the scorpion. But of course, as soon as he touched it, the scorpion would sting him, and instinctively, he'd draw his hand back, try to get his balance back on the roots again as he stretched himself out one more time. This last time, the scorpion stung him so badly that his hand began to bleed and swell, his face contorted in pain. A passerby saw what the old man was doing and he yelled at the man. He yelled, old man, what's wrong with you? Only a fool would risk his life to save an ugly, evil creature like that. Don't you know that you could kill yourself trying to save that ungrateful scorpion? The old man looked at the stranger and calmly he said this, my friend, just because it is the scorpion's nature to sting, that does not change my nature to save. <laughs> What's God's nature? God is love. And the word of God is Jesus, and the name Jesus means God saves, or God is salvation. He is love poured out. God is three persons and one substance. He is love. That's three individuals that constantly bleed life one into the other. Jesus prayed, Holy Father, may they be one, 
talking about us, may they be one as we are one. God is love, and in this is love, writes John, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, who is also, who is himself, their one, who sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the pleasing offering for our sin. On the cross, God sacrifices for us. On the cross, God bleeds for us. And so on the cross, love is made known. And, and where love is made known, God is made known. In the words of John, Jesus exegetes, this is what it literally says, Jesus exegetes God. Jesus has made him known. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, our Father. So, do you want to be made in his image and likeness or not? The perfected image of God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the phrase that Paul would use. The book of Hebrews says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. So check this out. When he cried, it is finished, it is perfected, it appears to include himself in the image of God. Not that he himself had ever sinned, but that he himself was perfected by bleeding for you, as if his wounds are his perfection. So do you remember, I hope so, from last week, do you remember what Jesus showed his disciples when he rose from the dead? Did he show them a certificate? Proving that he had graduated, that he was finished in the image of God, a diploma, stating that he had graduated from the school of love. Did he, did he show them maybe diamonds or gold from the very throne of God? Did he show them his superpowers? I suppose he did, just by standing in their presence, but what he seemed to have really cared about was something very different. His treasure was something else. His glory was something else. He showed them his wounds. Far be it from me to glory except in the cross of Christ, writes Paul at the end of his letter to Galatians. Then he, then he writes this, Henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks, the scars, the wounds of Jesus. <laughs> that was his treasure. You see, the scars on Paul's body and the wounds to Paul's psyche, they no longer meant shame. Now they meant glory. The glory of God on him, alive in him, emanating from him. Five times he had received the 40 lashes, lest one. Each scar on his back no longer meant that he had failed to change the world, and, and you know Paul wrestled with that if you read his letters, but each wound, each scar no longer meant that he had failed to change the world, each scar meant that he had become the image and likeness of God. So Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, turn the other cheek, give them your cloak, go the extra mile, love your enemies, why? so that you can be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Not so that you can end poverty in your lifetime 
or so that you can build a big church, or so that you can congratulate yourself on how generous you are, but so that you can be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven, so that you can be finished, perfected in the image and likeness of God. Matthew 26, 21. Jesus does not resist the evil. You, you can read about this. Or, or, or the one who is evil, or the ones who are evil. Then Matthew 26, 67, Jews slap Jesus across the cheek in the house of the high priest. Matthew 27, 35, they take and he gives his tunic and his cloak. He's stripped naked, bare naked in front of all those witnesses. Matthew 27, 31, Roman soldiers make him bear a burden. He makes him bear our burden. He bears a cross more than a mile. He bears it right into the depths of hell and he did it praying for those who persecuted him and then he cried, it is finished, to telestai from teleo, same word, teleo, and he delivered up his spirit. Then he rose from the dead and he showed us his wounds. So, do you want to be made in the image and likeness of God? Or not? See, maybe sacrificial love is not good for what it produces, but everything else is good for producing sacrificial love in us. Years ago, I felt profoundly wounded, for I spoke what I believed to be true, and when I spoke it, I, I thought I spoke it in love. A friend whom I thought agreed with me but refused to stand with me, with me then asked me one day shortly after, he, he said, Peter, was it worth it? I've struggled for years to articulate an answer, but, but I think the answer, I think this is the answer. Was it worth it? No. It wasn't worth it. It was it. The people in line at the chicken stand wanted to ask, was it worth it? You gave five bucks to what? Feed a, a liar and wound your ego? Was it worth it? Well, no, maybe it wasn't worth it. Maybe it was it. It was it if I was truly wounded and I truly surrendered that wound to Christ. You see, maybe your wounds are not valuable for what they produce, but everything else exists to produce those wounds. For every wound on your body is a wound on the body of Christ. And they only mean shame for as long as you hide them from him. When you sin, you wound your God, yourself, and your neighbor. But when you confess your sin, you give your sins to Christ, and in that place, in that place of the wound, you receive mercy. 
You begin to believe mercy. Uh, you begin to um, bleed mercy for others like, like a fountain of, of mercy. Your wounds of shame become his fountain of glory. When someone sins against you and you forgive them, your wounds are revealed as Christ's wounds and you become the perfected image of God. Then every wound is a revelation of love and every wound right now is an invitation to love. God is love. Love is not good for something. Everything else exists for the revelation of love, who is God and is the good. Love is not good for something, it's just the good. That's the point. Love is not good for something, and yet love creates and sustains all somethings, all things. Love binds all things together. And you know, a body is bound together at the wounds. I mean, if you cut off my finger, it would be bound back to my body at the wound where, where the finger would bleed and my body would bleed in and out. They would bleed into, into each other. And then this is love, not that we love, but that he loved us and gave his son. That's, that's what love is. Never, never use love for some other reason, but check this out. Love is the reason. Love is the reason, and he, he delights in using you, not because he has to, not because he, he needs to, but because he wants to. Love is happy, and he wants you to share his joy as he binds all things together. The word of love just told us, blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Of them, it's literally of them is the kingdom of heaven, constructed of them. Blessed, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. On my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. And remember, they are the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're like them. Jesus just said, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's often called the lex talionis from the, the Latin law of retaliation. And Jesus recites it from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And then he says, but I say to you, do not retaliate, turn the other cheek. And yet he's already told us that he came to fulfill the law. He told us that about one minute ago in the very same sermon. See, I think he wants us to ask the question, Jesus, how do you fulfill the law of retaliation? It's interesting that the lex talionis isn't included in the Ten Commandments, which are placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the depths of the sanctuary in the temple, but it is included in the laws for the governance of the nation state of, of Israel. I don't know, this may be true of some ancient Vikings or something, but I don't know of any parent, I don't know any parents that want their child to live by the lex talionis. And yet I don't know of any parents that don't employ the lex talionis in teaching their child how to live. Let me say that again. I, I don't know of any parents that want their 
children to live by the lex talionis, and yet I don't know of any parents that don't employ the lex talionis in teaching their children how to live. I mean, every, every parent understands this. My daughter Elizabeth was wonderfully strong-willed as a small child, and she had a problem with, with biting. <laughs> Once when Susan was vacuuming, this really happened. Susan bit, bent over, and, and Elizabeth bit her so hard she left teeth marks. Bloody teeth marks in Susan's bum, her backside, her bottom. Our pediatrician said, look, Susan, look, um, you've got to bite her back. When you are bitten in one cheek, you don't turn the other cheek, bite back, bite back. That's the Lex Talionis. Now listen. Susan didn't need to bite Elizabeth in order to fulfill some abstract law called justice. Elizabeth needed Susan to bite her so that she would know that when you bite your mom's bum, you're really biting your own bum, it will come back to bite you in your own bum. She needed to know the good, the right, the just. I'm happy to say that for almost 30 years now, neither Elizabeth nor Susan has bit the other one in the bum. And they like each other. They talk on the phone all the time. Well, even so, even if that's the case, the Lex Talionis was a law in ancient Israelite courts. And I, I think Jesus claims to not simply abrogate it. He doesn't, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't end it. He doesn't abrogate it. He says that he fulfills it life for life. You may remember that Jesus is the life, the one and only life. So just by thinking that you have a right to life, I mean, a right to your own life, that your own life belongs to you, just by thinking that you have your own life, you confess that you've stolen life and claimed it as your own. As we've been preaching, humanity took the life of the good who is God on a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And with every sin, we take the life of the good from a tree in the Garden on Calvary. We take blood, and the life is in the blood. The entire sacrificial system is a description of how that blood is to be returned to the tree that is also a throne. The lex talionis requires that we pay with our lives, life for life. And we all took the life of Christ. But the night before we took his life on the tree, Jesus gave his life at dinner, saying, this is my body given to you. This is my blood shed for you, uh, given to you, for, for given to you. In the Revelation, we find out that God gave his life from the foundation of the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So long before we could take his life, he gave his life. So the idea that we owe his life may just be an illusion of the human ego, which believes that it is the creator and therefore cannot be forgiven. So perhaps we don't owe the life, and, and now I'm conjecturing on a lot of this, so just think with me. Perhaps we don't owe the life, and yet to live 
is to surrender our lives. That's what Jesus says. You've got to lose your psyche to find it. To live is to surrender our lives. Jesus helps us, you see, I think, return the life to the tree in the garden, life for life. Once we truly see that he is forgiven his life, we will want to give our lives and we'll know that it's not really even our lives that we're giving, for he is the life, the one life that is our life. He is human life, the life of Hadam, the man. Remember that David prayed, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. When we take the life of another, we truly take life from Jesus, and Jesus is the life we take. And yet, Jesus forgives his life on a tree in a garden. You see, that revelation will just utterly destroy your arrogant ego and create in you a new desire, a desire to love as you have been loved, to give life as you constantly, freely receive life. So if someone takes your life, you'll know that it's actually Christ's life and gladly give that life, thankful for the joy of being able to give life and confident that there is, there's no shortage of life. You're gonna find that out one day. There's no shortage of life. There is an eternal river of life. Julian of Norwich said stuff in that river, that blood is the most plentiful substance in the universe. Now, of course, in this world, that giving can be painful in this age, but it's an absolute banquet of joy in the next. It's not death, but the death of death, which is eternal life. Jesus is the life that's given, and Jesus is the decision to give. Jesus is the manifest judgment of God. He is the decision to love. He transforms the lex talionis from a description of hell into the reality that is the kingdom of God. He's the judgment that transforms the law of retaliation into the way of love. He's the crisis, crisis in Greek, translated judgment. So you can think of hell, to use the old uh, Norse word, hell, H-E-L, Hades or Sheol, think of them as being right over here. And when you think of it as over here, I want you to picture seven billion self-centered individual organisms or cells, all competing for life. That would be hell. Hades, Sheol. And now, think of the kingdom of heaven right over here. Picture seven billion individual members or or cells not competing, but constantly communing and cooperating and sacrificing one for another. That would be a body. The body of Christ is the kingdom of heaven. And now imagine if upon those seven billion individual organisms in hell, we were to issue a judgment, enforce this judgment, we impose this decision on on hell, everyone in hell. You will bleed for your neighbor. You will love. Well, that would be hell for hell, wouldn't it? That judgment would burn everyone there like fire. You see, I think that would be what the Bible calls Gehenna. But now, imagine, what if we romance that judgment into each organism in hell, such that 
this decision became their decision, their free decision, this decision. You will bleed for your neighbor. You will lose your life and, and find it. Well, that would be hell for hell as well. But the judgment wouldn't come from the outside. The judgment would rise up from the inside, kind of like a fountain. The judgment wouldn't burn like fire. It would feel like life. And you see, that's what the Bible calls salvation. You understand, when love is only a law, it burns like hell. But when love is a life that sits on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul, he binds everything together and everyone experiences ecstasy. You were born into this world to learn love in the very image and likeness of God. To love is to freely choose to give your life to your neighbor. And so every wound you experience is an invitation to love. Every wound surrendered to Jesus then becomes a door to eternal life. Jesus does not judge, that's what scripture says, and yet his word and his wounds are the judgment. You must not judge, and yet the wounds you bear in love, they are the judgment. Sacrificial love is the judgment of this world. Sacrificial love is not good for something else. Sacrificial love is everything that's good. Is it worth it? No, it is it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arguably the most promising young, intelligent theologian of the 20th century, mentored by the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth. However, his theology, his theology that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that in his own body of flesh, Jesus tore down the dividing wall um, between uh, Jews and Gentiles, between God and humanity, and between each and every man. Well, that theology, that theology didn't play well in the Third Reich. So as the Nazi threat grew in Germany, scholars in America arranged for Bonhoeffer to come and teach in New York in, in exile at Union Theological Seminary. But no sooner had the boat docked in July of 1939 that Bonhoeffer knew that he needed to return to Germany and suffer with his brothers and sisters there. And back in Germany, he was unable to maintain his pacifist convictions and he became involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. April 1943, he was arrested for assisting a group of Jews in an attempt to escape to Switzerland. In July of 1944, a hidden bomb that was meant for Hitler exploded without killing the Fuhrer. Bonhoeffer was implicated in that plot and sentenced to death. Bonhoeffer failed as a pacifist, and Bonhoeffer failed as a militant. And yet, in prison, he loved his captors, his enemies. 
He pastored congregations of men wherever he happened to be imprisoned, men that included some of his guards. He, he was imprisoned for a few years. It included some of his guards who would then apologize to him at night for having to lock the doors on his cells. Those guards smuggled his papers to the outside world. They're now a published classic, used to be titled Prisoner for God. Now I think that new versions are letters and papers from, from prison. April 8, 1945, having just finished a prayer, the prison worship service was interrupted. Two men entered and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Bonhoeffer whispered to a friend, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged at Flossenburg, just hours before the Allies liberated the camp. It's said that as he approached the gallows, he broke free from the guard and ran to the tree on which he would hang, shouting a verse that he'd written a few months before, O oh, death, you are the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Jesus, I'm coming home. Bonhoeffer failed as a pacifist. And Bonhoeffer failed as a militant. But Jesus did not fail in shaping Dietrich Bonhoeffer into the very image and likeness of God. That's the point. Jesus is the point and he will not fail. Who does he think he is? The Word of God. And so he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And a fountain opened. He took the cup saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the point. So let's do this together, because you see, we are all joined no matter where we are, we are joined at the wound. sing out hallelujah, praise you, that Jesus, you are God, and you said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, 
That means, Dad, it was, it was you that was on that tree. It was your heart. And so, yeah, this scares the crap out of me, but I think I would like to be like you. Thank you, Father, for sending our Lord Jesus, who is that very desire in our hearts. Thank you that you want us to share in your joy. And the angels long to look into the gift that you have given us. Thank you, Dad, that you're good. You're good. And you give me your life. In Jesus' name, amen. I shared this with you last summer, but one particularly cold New England winter, John Winthrop, one of the founding fathers, was informed that a, foreman, a poor man was taking wood from his woodpile. The Lex Talionis, retributive justice, the, the Old Testament law would require that that man pay back all the wood from John Winthrop's woodpile. Our justice, the justice that we usually employ, would be much more severe, because not only would he have to pay back the wood, he'd have to pay back the wood with interest for pain and suffering. Well, John Winthrop found the man, and he said to the man, it has been an unusually hard winter. So I just want to inform you that you may take as much wood from my woodpile as you desire. He would then brag to his friends, in this way, I healed that poor man of stealing. That's substantive, that's biblical justice. And you see, that's also the fulfillment of the Lex Talionis. Wood for wood and the revelation of love. So believe the gospel and you will become the gospel. In fact, the light will shine most brilliantly from your wounds. Amen.